episode number 13, one three, with Jacob Fiedler. Today, Jacob joins us from Toronto, Canada, via the online system of Zoom. And Jacob is going to discuss the fatigue science technology called the ReadyBand. Now, the ReadyBand is a wrist-worn technology that many of you may be familiar with from me speaking about this on this podcast. Also, it's been featured or being used by uh, successful teams such as the Seattle Seahawks, the Vancouver Canucks in ice hockey, Chicago Cubs, and has now been used by the Wallabies um, here in Australia, the Australian rugby union team. In some of our research here in Western Australia, we used the watch with the Western Force, the Perth Lynx, and we also used that the Australian Institute of Sport. So it's a, it's a cool device that's been developed from military-grade technology for specific use in athletes, and it's virtually indestructible, or soldier-proof as we used to call it. So Jacob will join us today from that podcast that I recorded a few weeks ago. Also some good news, as of Monday this week, my PhD journey came to an end. I finally handed in my PhD thesis. The thesis is titled Sleep and Performance in Elite Combat and Contact Athletes. And what I'm gonna do is over the next few weeks, I'm going to record kind of mini episodes, 20 minutes to a half an hour long, where I'm gonna break that thesis down to little chunks because I'm finding that many people are interested, which is awesome. And instead of writing lots of blogs or regurgitating those publications that came out with those in review, what I'm going to do is kind of systematically work through that thesis and break it down to small chapters that we could use. Um, sorry, not chapters, but like, well, podcast chapters, you want to call them those, that we can kind of put up and then people can reference um, So on those. The background is uh, really, or the thesis is really focused on combat sports, particularly judo and grappling, not any striking sports, uh, although we do have some MMA fighters in some of the studies. And then the other part is contact athletes, mainly being rugby. Now, this is not the end of the research journey. I still have five more studies that I'm working on that I commenced basically the day after I handed in this PhD, which is great and a good sign. It means I'm not totally over it. And so they range from female basketball athletes to uh, looking at weight cutting and sleep and also jet lag in rugby players. Got two jet lag papers there to, to look at as well. So plenty of more research coming out. And also another paper I worked on with another guy, Reed Real, Dr. Reed Real, who was at the AIS. Um, had a, we had a paper published last week that, well, really Reed's paper that I worked on him on, on the paper with him about weight cutting. And it was the first ever study that really looked at the effects of water loading and diets in a controlled environment. And we did that at the AIS last year. So that paper got accepted last week. So keep uh, stay tuned to the Facebook page and I will post that abstract and that paper up there as soon as we can get it out. So that's quite cool. All right, before we get into the episode, this episode is sponsored by Sleep for Performance. Sleep for Performance is an expert consultancy operated by yours truly and we specialize in supporting businesses such as mining companies, aviation, rail, transport and so on and helping businesses to optimize the area of sleep for performance. So what does that mean? Well, that can come across in many different ways and from a business perspective, such as the effective design of rosters to maximize productivity, minimize health and safety incidents to personnel, lower financial cost, and uh, 
you know, truly get those triple line, uh, bottom triple line benefits to an organization. And so we do roster design, roster optimization, fatigue management education, fatigue management development uh, for policies, procedures, strategy, integration, work with the rest of the organization. Um, and also as well, uh, sleep disorder screening programs, linking in with your health providers and so on. So ending in sort of the remit of fatigue risk management and productivity and performance is what we do. Secondly, we also work with athletic organizations, big, small, medium, it doesn't really matter. We can do a re- offer a range of services there for athletes and athletic programs um, from the use of validated questionnaires to identify potential sleep problems with athletes, optimize recovery periods, design of training schedules, which is a key thing, which is also a key finding from my PhD thesis. So how do we truly optimize those training times to get the best out of our players? And are we training at the right times to get the best performance out of our athletes depending on the sport and um, you know so plenty of stuff there for sleepful performance to help out industry and athletes like so if you're interested in any of those services drop me an email at ian dunican d-u-n-i-c-a-n at sleepforperformance.com.au or on twitter hit me up at, at sleep for perform or sleep for perform performance uh, the facebook page as well with multiple ways you can get in contact with me all right enough blabbering on we're going to get to this episode with jacob fiedler from toronto canada to talk more about this uh, great device the ready band and some of its cool capabilities Fiedler, join us from Toronto, Canada. How's the weather up there today, Jacob? It's been awesome. Awesome. We're so we've been so fortunate to have warm, sunny, sort of a second summer of sorts. So I, I have a feeling it's going to come to an abrupt halt here, though, very shortly. Yeah. We're going to have a have winter here before we know it. Because it's just October sixth, and I know I know does the school year in Canada run from September to about May or June? It does. The kids go back to school after what we call uh, Labor Day, which is a long, the first weekend in September. Okay, so similar to Ireland as well, we would have the same school year, which in Australia it's a bit different, but um, in Ireland it was the same. And it was always the same in Ireland that when you went, the kids went back to school, that's when summer would actually really start around September. So, yeah, it's, uh, it's unfortunate, for, uh, unfortunate for those going back to school, but fortunate for those who can take uh, holidays at those times. So that's great. <laughs> So Jacob, you are based in Toronto, uh, I was going to say Toronto, Vancouver, Toronto, but you used to be based in Vancouver and you work for a company called Fatigue Science. Can you give us a little quick overview of what the company Fatigue Science is and what they do? Absolutely. So uh, that's right. I'm based in Toronto. We have an office in Vancouver. Most of our people are based there. Uh, We've got about 40 people that work for the the company now. Uh, I've been with Fatigue Science for about five years. And we're, we're a technology company, so we, we develop a, a wrist-worn wearable device that's known as the ReadyBand, uh, which is a, an actigraph. So it's essentially an accelerometer-based uh, device. It measures and logs the motion of the wrist. And then based on that motion and our proprietary software, we can characterize sleep. So essentially, it's a, a sleep tracking device based on motion, 
And this is a, a device that we've developed um, over a number of years and apply or de deploy in a number of different environments in high performance settings, military environments, whether that's uh, uh, we may also de uh, deploy it in, in industrial environments, mining, oil and gas, transportation. And sort of what differentiates fatigue science and the ready band from other sleep tracking devices and consumer sleep trackers is we combine in our software the sleep tracking with a biomathematical fatigue model. So we're actually capturing good, objective, scientifically valid sleep data from the wearable device. And we're processing that through what's known as the safety model. Safety stands for sleep activity fatigue task effectiveness. It's a, a model that essentially simulates performance changes as a result of sleep deprivation, circadian disruption. And, and so that really is what sets us apart is the ability not only to quantify sleep and parameters around sleep like timing and quality duration, but also to be able to infer from that, from an individual's sleep, uh, a measure of fatigue or alertness. Yeah. Okay. So very interesting. So got lots and lots of that kind of opening kind of background of fatigue science. Um, but if we could just jump back and, and sort of clarify for people, you said about actigraphy, these are these wrist-worn devices, which you see lots of these on the market at the moment. But this device has been around for a long time before these commercial devices have been around and sort of was initially developed in, in military applications. And so what kind of military applications, Jacob, has it been used in previously? Yeah, so credit to our founders. They were very much ahead of their time in terms of creating a, a wearable device um, way, way before you know, we, we ever heard of a, a Fitbit or an Apple Watch or anything like that. Yeah. Um, so our founders actually, they took an approach where they both acquired and created a number of pieces of technology, intellectual property. Um, what's unique to fatigue science is what's called our sleep-wake classification algorithm. So it is the algorithm that looks at all this motion data captured from the wrist and is able to characterize sleep. So infer from that motion sleep and, and do that in a valid manner. And then uh, what our founders did as well is they actually acquired some really incredible technology that has roots in the U.S. military. So I referred to the safety model. Uh, that is actually an algorithm, uh, biomathematical fatigue model, that was developed in part uh, uh, with funding from U.S. Army Research Lab and Johns Hopkins University, uh, co-invented by Dr. Stephen Hirsch. And it's that tech that we've made part of our platform today. Yeah. So this is interesting because um, many people probably would not be familiar with biomathematical modeling. And those of us that are working the sort of chronobiology shift work um, would be very familiar with it. Um, but even those in the sports world haven't been you know, familiar with biomathematical modeling. And I've had some interesting comments on it recently. But anyway, uh, for those that don't know, biomathematical modeling is a specific kind of separate software to the actigraphy. So we just leave actigraphy, let's say, to one side for a moment. The biomathematical modeling and its fundamental um, sort of, you know, operation allows you to input a number of different variables to get a kind of a fatigue score, I'm using air quotes. So a number of these around 
the safety module, which is also known as FAST, the Fatigue Avoidance Scheduling Tool. There's FAIT by Adam Fletcher and Drew Dawson. Uh, there's the CAST system by Circadian. And these are a number of different other ones as well. And I wanna, I'm going to have somebody on talking about this in, in the near future as well, because it gets quite technical. Um, but basically, with the biomarker modeling, you can input a number of variables. So on, on average, from a kind of a demographic view, or even individual data, you can say, the person went to bed at this time, got up at this time, had this amount of sleep. They were in this specific time zone for light and dark cycles, which is linked to a circadian rhythm. You can also have them travel through time zones, which is one of the benefits of the safety model. And then from that, you can calculate a score, basically ranging from zero to 100, with 100 being sort of maximum performance, and then below 77.5 being suboptimal, and then below 70 basically being crap. <laughs> and so you've got these ranges of, of performance and so you can kind of equate what's going on and different different models have different scoring systems and so what Jacob is describing here is the ability for the actigraphy data to marry in with this biomathematical data instantaneously and give you a score and um, so they're two very separate things but one of the cool things about this is that to actually marry it together am I explaining that right Jacob? Yeah, I think so, Ian. I think, you know, in, in very simple terms, the, the, the fatigue model, the safety model, it allows us in a way to distill down all of the complexity of sleep, right, and in, 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 in provide a, a measure of performance, right? So it's very, very difficult. If you look at just sleep duration or a measure of sleep quantity alone, it's, it's very difficult to infer from that how that affects someone's performance on a day-to-day or even an hour-to-hour basis, right? Yeah, so, because some people need six hours and some people need seven and some people need eight and some people need nine. So it's how do you kind of measure it? Well, and, and we know, you know, I, I'm oversimplifying here, but what we really focus on a lot in, in when we talk, when we're dealing with high-performance high athletes or we're dealing with shift workers is talking, talking to them about controllable factors that are going to influence their performance. So three key things that we really focus on is aside from the obvious, which is sleep quantity or the duration of the sleep period, we're focusing on things um, such as sleep quality. So limiting interruptions or sleep fragmentation, as well as we also talk about consistency, right? So the timing of sleep matters. And the consistency of the timing of sleep matters. And in some respects, um, all three of those are controllable and sometimes not. They're driven by work schedules and travel and medical issues and other things. But the safety model at its core is able to, to some degree, distill down the complexity and look both acutely and chronically Mm. at someone's sleep-wake history and provide a measure of fatigue, of alertness. An objective measure. Yeah, an objective measure, yeah. right? And, and, and one key feature of the safety model is it is by very nature of a model that is predictive. So based on not only my sleep last night, but the, accu- the cumulative effects of my sleep or sleep deprivation more chronically, say over the, the past seven nights, it can provide an objective estimate of my alertness. Uh, uh, at any given moment in time, in real time, and uh, for the sake of practicality, up to, say, 18 or 20 hours into the future. Yeah. So, so if I'm a shift worker and I'm juggling long journey times 
and I'm dealing with circadian disruption as a result of transitioning from day shift to night shift, and perhaps I'm dealing with uh, uh, sleep uh, uh, restriction as a, as a result of having to sleep during the day and be awake at night, and all of those different complex factors, uh, the safety model can give me uh, a, a measure of where I'm going to be at right now, and at what point am I gonna cross potentially a, a threshold where my fatigue could create a, a safety issue, right? Where I may be crossing that level of, in, of what we refer to as fatigue impairment. Which, which can also then support planning of tasks. So if we're in a high-risk environment and you know, we're in a shutdown and a mining operation or there's a critical task, we have to do in a military environment where we want to plan training in a sports-specific uh, team, we can f- look out to this predictively and say, right, between two and four this afternoon, for example, people's performance is going to be at 75%, which is suboptimal. But at five o'clock, everybody's going to be at 90%. So therefore, we can make a decision based on that for training times or performance. Would that be correct? Well, that's exactly right. And what is so um, incredible about wearable technology now and sensors and software and analytics is we can look at these data in aggregate and on the individual basis. So as an example, I've been involved for the last couple of years in supporting a couple of the primary contractors on Europe's largest construction project, which is known as Crossrail. It's a 100-kilometer rail line. It runs from the east to the west in London. About half of it is underground. Oh, this this was on here. There was a documentary on here in Australia the other night on this. Yeah. Uh, Yeah, yeah. I just watched the first 10 minutes of it. It was was Fascinating. It was unbelievable. This, this is a new tube system, like that new liner building. It's That's like right. 10,000 10, workers or something. Yeah, so yeah. It, it, at, its, at its peak, there were yeah. up to about 14,000, 15,000 workers on this project. They've spent something like $20 billion, US dollars, on this project. Uh, it's a phenomenal undertaking. And we, um, we're working with a number of different stakeholders that are uh, involved in the delivery of this project. But coming back to my point about using the data, looking at aggregate data, and, and, and using that to inform planning, um, in, in this particular example, we supported a, a customer, a client there, whereby they, they deployed ready bands across a, a, a group of uh, workers that were working underground. They were doing tunneling type work. And the data in aggregate anonymized, it informed at what points during a, uh, a shift pattern were their greatest fatigue exposures, right? So essentially, when we, went, we went through a process where we measured um, and, and, and did a, uh, over the course of a number of weeks, measured fatigue exposure uh, via a collection of sleep data and, and combining that with the safety model. And that actually, that going through that process actually informed modifications into not only the shift pattern, but also what specific tasks they were doing at, at what times mm-hmm. during the shift pattern. So on night shift, as an example, or towards the tail end of a series of night shifts, they had certain safety critical tasks that needed to be done, and they, they made sure to um, essentially front load those. Yeah. Right? So on the, on the night shift, doing those most safety critical tasks earlier on, as opposed to three in the morning, when they knew their greatest fatigue exposures and their greatest risk were present. And this is interesting, like, um, like you said, using a subjective measure, because a lot of times in these applications, 
supervisors will grapple with particularly like a supervisor or superintendent type role in these type of environments is very difficult because they've got 50 different things happening at once and then you say to them yeah guys you got to manage fatigue you got to manage safety and it's like well you know it's like licking your finger and sticking it in the ear going which way is the wind blowing like it's it's very difficult for these guys to ascertain if somebody is fatigued or how the group is doing so this allows a very quick objective measure for the supervisor for him or her to have a quick look and see what's actually happening and takes the whole mystique out of fatigue and sort of these health monitoring things and actually just boils it down to one number which is which is crucial um, for these guys in, in managing these shifts so I think it's it's really cool where it has the ability to be able to do that uh, particularly for us with frontline leaders. Well, I think, Ian, you know, I've had been fortunate to to work with you in the past on different projects, but I I, I know you understand this this uh, intimately. Um, but, you know, what we end up doing a lot of the time is we get called in to support clients as a result of some pain that they're feeling, that they're experiencing. And, and what, what we really like to do is educate two clients on better design, right? So the, the benefit of the safety model as is with, with other models you've re- referenced is they can inform better planning and design full stop. So ensuring that we're setting workers up for success. So this is better planning and design of the roster system. Yeah, yeah, ensuring that not only are they being provided, are the workers being provided adequate sleep opportunity, but that the the way the shift patterns are designed, if they're rotating shift schedules from days to nights and so on, accounting for potential long journey times. As in the case in England, we have people working in central London. They're having to grapple with traffic. Yeah. Some of them live up near the Scottish border. They've got very long journey times, right? So we've got a there, there's an opportunity, I think, in not only in construction and mining, but more broadly to be more thoughtful and take a bit more of a sophisticated approach in ensuring things are designed uh, for the workers' sleep and ultimately for their performance. And and, and that really needs to be the the first layer of defense, right? Because if if we've designed things in such a way where where really we haven't set our people up for success when it comes to allowing them adequate time for sleep and recovery, then – um, you know, becomes a, a much, much more difficult challenge to manage. And even though we can provide this real-time and predictive data, to your point, from an operational standpoint, it can be very challenging, right, to got to keep productivity happening, got to keep things moving, to be intervening on that, it, it, represent, or it can present its own, own inherent challenges. It's interesting you say this, Jacob, because um, I've been going through a lot of literature at the moment in the sports world about what's affecting sleep duration, particularly after games or even during a week or when you're traveling or when you're on a training camp. And one of the biggest things that's kind of reducing sleep duration athletes is the imposition of training schedules. And it's particularly early, early morning starts. Now, people will have different ideas about what early morning starts may be. I discussed this on a previous podcast where... You know, some people will go, well, 7 o'clock in the morning is early, but in a mining environment, well, half 4 in the morning might be early, or even half 2 in the morning might be early, so it depends what you're used to. But it seems to be, in general, because these athletes are somewhere in the range between 18 to 30 years of age, on average about 25 or so, it seems to be that any session before sort of half 8 in the morning reduces sleep duration because they don't get to bed very 
you know, don't go, don't fall asleep early the night before. So if training sessions are sort of, you know, past eight o'clock in the morning, it seems to be, you know, linked to a better performance. So it's interesting that then a device like this can support that change because you can actually see the sleep patterns of what's actually happening. And you could compare kind of days of training to days off. So you can see when they're on their days off, they actually sleep till half eight, which will be their normal sleep time, where we can see on the days where a training session starts at 7 a.m., they're getting up at six o'clock in the morning and they're losing this hour or two of sleep on those days. So this device can kind of um, support that objective data again in, in those environments. Yeah, we, we are very fortunate to get to work with a number of, of professional sports teams in North America and abroad across all major, all, all most major leagues, whether that's Major League Baseball, National League. So, so, so Jacob, don't, don't underplay this because um, I want you to tell people who are the teams you've been working with, if you can say them, because I know you've had some press around it, so it's good. Who have you been working with in NFL? Successful teams, so, by the way. <laughs> certainly, yeah. Uh, the, the, we've been very fortunate that uh, a few of the teams that we've worked with have been have had some amazing successes of late. So, a, a few examples would be the Seattle Seahawks, um, the Chicago Cubs, as an example. And and what's so interesting about um, the, the the these types of environments, and you mentioned the you know the the, the timing uh, of training and other things is is the the a lot of things are done because of the way they've always been done. So as an example, in Major League Baseball, in spring training, which let's say for the sake of this conversation is about a six-week sprint in the spring, yeah. uh, either in Arizona or in Florida, um, often it, it, it's entirely normal to bring guys in early in the morning. But that is almost entirely opposite of what you'd have in season, where for the most part, there are day games, mostly sort of more on the weekends, but most of the guys are playing now at night, right? So, um, and that, of course, can have a dramatic impact on things like nutrient timing as well, where you have got young guys who are trying to squeeze out every last minute and then, you know, what they're eating or when they're eating, it can be completely out of out of. Um, out of whack as well, right? So it's interesting at kind of looking at how in, across all of these different sports and different environments, how these things are managed. And you're starting to see teams become more aware and more sophisticated in their approaches here. So it was, I think it was last year that the Yankees, uh, they, it was reported in the Times or somewhere else that they're actually letting guys at spring training show up later. So they weren't having them effectively report at 6.30, 7.30 in the morning. They were letting them come in at 9 or 10 to be more sort of in sync with what's happening during in-season. Yeah, that's a great point, Jacob. I have, I have this, I've had this conversation with a number of fighters as well where, you know, they kind of beat their chest and tell you how good they are getting up at like 7 o'clock in the morning or 6 o'clock in the morning or even half 4 in the morning to go running. I'm like, what time's your fight? Uh, probably nine o'clock at night. So why are you training at half four in the morning when your fight's at nine o'clock in the night? Why wouldn't you try to replicate those conditions as best you can and attune your body to that time of day? And they look at you like, you know, you're crazy. But again, spoken about ad nauseum on this, people are too, too into the Rocky movie, getting up in the morning, running around town, you know, I'm up grinding while my enemy is sleeping. Guess what? Your enemy is sleeping and he's recovering and he's getting ready to beat you at nine o'clock when you're falling asleep. That's the problem, you know. So it's, it's great to hear that, you know, these other teams are, are looking at this kind of um, holistically and using the data then to inform those changes. Because we got, yeah. you, you spoke about like so much data. I think it's great that we have data. 
But, you know, a lot of times there's a lot of junk out there. There's a lot of crap data, and then we make decisions. So a lot of times it's junk in and gospel out. But I think if you get good data in, then you can make some good decisions, and then you can remeasure and kind of test your improvements or interventions. And one of the things I like about this system is that you don't have to be an expert sleep scientist to come in and do it. You can nearly, you know, trial and test yourself. These are the interventions, these are the changes, and see the improvements instantaneously within a day or two, or even hour by hour in some cases and see what the effect is happening. So it demystifies the whole sleep world. Well, and, and Ian, in, in, the, in the markets that we serve, like we don't sell ready bands to individual consumers. That's not our, our game. Um, but in the markets that we serve, again, whether that's a military application or an industrial application or a high performance setting, really the, a, a solution such as ours, it needs to be credible, right? Because we're dealing with, uh, you know, you're dealing with um, um, situations where the data it, it has to be credible. So at least, you know, from on our on our side, we've gone through the process of of uh, validating the ready band against polysomnography, which is the the gold standard of objective sleep measurement, to you know provide a, a measure of how accurate is this overall in characterizing an individual's sleep when compared to, compared to that in laboratory sleep testing. And then this, the safety model itself has been validated by a number of organizations in a wide range of different environments. So really, the, this, the, this, the technology solutions and the data, they need to be credible, they need to be actionable, and they need to be accessible too. Mm-hmm. Right? There can't be such a burden on coaching staff or health and safety or operational staff where it becomes impossible to operationalize in their environment. And so that's, that's not a trivial endeavor because you've got to design, you've got to have all the science sorted out, but then you've got to be able to design technology solutions, hardware, software, mobile applications, web applications, marry all this together to create a solution that is operationally feasible, right? yeah. that, that'll work in the day-to-day. And, and that's very much something that we've we've spent a lot of time and energy and effort focusing on is, is how to plug in this technology in a wide range of environments, make it work, make it actionable, make it accessible. Um, and and, and th- that really is, I think, been a differentiator for us too, right, is, is being able to sort of um, – Pull pull this all together in a way to 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 really make it work in a wide range of settings. So Jacob, um, let's say you go into an operation, um, you know, where it be let's take a mining company for example. You go in, you go to a mining company. You got maybe we'll just use for example, you got fifty guys operating in a load and haul environment. So you know they're kind of dragging the dirt to the plant in these haul trucks, tipping it in. It can be quite monotonous, back and forth to a shovel load or whatever, and. Um, or back and forth there, or else they're taking like the waste ore and put into a waste dump, which can be quite long as well and, and monotonous for some people. So you got fifty guys. You walk in. What happens in the, in the first scenario? How do you get these guys set up? How do they get the data off the off the watch? Does it go to their phone? Does it go to the supervisor? Can it be used against them? Like a lot of people will be wondering how. What's the kind of the basic kind of mechanics? How this whole thing operates from a day to day perspective. Yeah, you know, it's a great question, Ian. So what we typically do is we go through, we sit down with the client, and we really first attempt to kind of get a lay of the land, right? And, and get a sense of how they see the world. 
what specifically, what, what are they concerned about? What pain are they experiencing? We go through a process where we start to evaluate, uh, uh, essentially do an assessment of, of readiness, right? So how ready is in that particular context or in that workforce, are they to potentially adopt a technology solution such as ours? Um, considering um, cultural uh, things, considering legal uh, things and so on, and really try to just best then uh, size up the situation in order to align on the, the appropriate solution. And really in a mining context, primarily we would start one of two places. The, the first place we'd start is, um, is 100% private solution, meaning we can maintain 100% privacy for the end wearer. And that is um, what I would characterize more of as a, as a worker self-management solution where workers are wearing ready bands, they're seeing data on their mobile phones, their own personal data in a confidential manner. And that data is not shared with anybody, right? And we pair that solution with an appropriate level of onboarding, training, education, equipping them with the basics of understanding what is it that I'm looking at here? Yeah. How do I take these action, these insights and make them actionable? And if I need to put up my hand because I think I need some help or if I'm seeing that I'm chronically fatigued, making sure that the right resources are in place to support those individuals. So that, that is from a, from a privacy standpoint, one of the sort of easiest entry points right? And being able to basically overcome any concerns around, hey, this data is going to be used against me, or I don't want people seeing, seeing it and so on. We have a solution for that. and We can maintain a 100% private solution. The, the other um, uh, piece that I, and I referenced in my example over in Crossrail is we can, um, combined with a worker self-management solution, collect data and then provide analysis to the management team on that data in aggregate anonymously. So we're not reporting back to anyone on, uh, on the data on any one individual, but rather providing insights around trends, measures of fatigue exposure, uh, pinch points that may be more systemic or schedule induced. And those, those types of insights and that analysis, that can inform changes such as uh, the example that I used, which is we're going to move around what tasks we're doing over the course of a shift, or we may consider modifying uh, slightly the, the way the shift pattern is designed and so on. Those are two sort of typical examples in terms of that, that type of environment. And then one other example of, uh, that we've, we've had a great deal of success with, especially as of late, is using the ready band more as a, a screening tool. So working again in a confidential manner, primarily aligned with the occupational health and medical teams to use the ready band combined with subjective questionnaires and, and maybe other data sources to identify those individuals that need some help, right? Again, this isn't intended to be used in a punitive way at all, but it, it's inevitable. There's going to be some individuals on some site that may be dealing with some undiagnosed or untreated medical sleep disorder. They may be very well driving a haul truck or engaged in safety critical work, working shift work, working night shifts, and would benefit from, from getting some help from uh, the appropriate you know, medical professional. Yeah. And there's also, um, there's also probably another, another way that can be used, Jacob, as well. And it's probably um, 
I should disclose here at this time as well, which I should have disclosed at the start of the episode, is that I do use this device in my research, and I have used it in mining. And in professional sports teams, where I've used it in, in Super Rugby, across the Southern Hemisphere and, and Japan, what's interesting is the players have actually said, we're quite happy for the coaches to look at our data, 37 players, when we track them across the season. We're quite happy for us to get the data to our phone, but we're quite happy for our coaches to look at the data. And we're quite happy for you, Ian, to log in, look at our data. And if you think there's a problem, tell the coaches. And the reason being is that when this happens and you've got maybe 95% of your players, you know, all in operating with a set of green zone above 90%, and you've got, you know, a few guys there that are struggling, we can then kind of, you know, when we're traveling specifically, we can email the team doctor and the athletic staff and say, you know, players number 15, 16, and 17, we'll just call that for now, are struggling with jet lag. They're not adapting to this time zone. Maybe go and have a chat to them. Maybe, you know, reduce the training load. Maybe offer them, um, you know, tamazepam as a sleeping medication to help them with a couple of nights. And so we can then start kind of doing these individual tailored interventions whilst they're on the road, whilst they're in the season. And that proved quite beneficial this year uh, for teams when they were traveling. But even at home as well, in the pre-season phase, we could start exactly what you said, Jacob, with some questionnaires. We could identify some people that may be at risk as well. So if the team or the group you're working with is um, culturally mature, I suppose, in that respect, you can start using it in any shape, way, or form. And one of the benefits there was that the data that we had was like you said, was not used in a punitive way. It was used in a pure way for like performance. And so the team we worked with um, this year, and it's not it's it's not a secret, it was the Western Force, which unfortunately are gone out of super rugby competition now. But nine of those players this year, the highest record number of players were selected to play for the Wallabies. And it could be argued that they had one of their most successful seasons in Super Rugby. Um, which is unfortunate again to finish second in the conference in Australia, but we're we're kind of pushed out of the conference, uh, pushed out of Super Rugby. Um, so that's a bit of a, a sore point for a lot of people here in Western Australia, including myself. Um, but um, it's unfortunate, you know, to lose Super Rugby here in this town. But, you know, it, we had such a good year working with them. It was great for us to work with those guys and use that data in that respect because, like I said, those individual interventions were, were great. So for elite sporting teams, this could be a differentiating factor for some. You know, that's an awesome example. And I think, again, it comes right back to the beginning, which is that initial conversation that we have when we engage with anyone is, again, trying to get an understanding of, of organizational readiness, getting an understanding of what is the culture. Does a culture like that exist to, to support uh, the use case that, that, as you described? And um, fortunately, in terms of, our, our platform, you know, we can tailor and tune the platform and ha can have very, place very tight and strict controls over who has access to what data, right? So um, that, that, that's an important uh, point I think we should make, which is depending on the context and the setting and the environment, we can sort of tailor that to meet, again, the, not only the requirements and the use case, but to sort of manage the, the nuance and the, the, the variability from environment to environment. Yeah, that's a very important point around privacy, which comes up a lot, particularly in industry. But Dick, I want to just go back and talk about um, the device itself, because people will be listening going, it's used in mining, it's used in sport, you know, it's used in military. How often do these things break? 
like what you know because I think it's worth talking about the design of them um because I think people are quite surprised when they, when they get them and they think it's going to be like another kind of generic sleep watch um so can you kind of comment on the design of the watch and the benefits of it C- certainly so yeah it's uh, we, 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 because of the environments that our, our technology is used in, uh, we have pretty sp- specific requirements in terms of the, from an engineering standpoint, what, what, what the tech specs are. So not only does it need to be robust, because it could be in a, in a mine in Western Australia or in a war theater or in high performance settings, it's, it needs to hold up uh, in, a, in a wide range of environments, but also to uh, we've got good battery life on our device, so average is about 30 days or so. And that's important, too, because, again, when you're deploying lots of devices and you're capturing lots of data from a, from a reliability and sort of accessibility standpoint, you can't be placing a great burden on either your workers or your athletes to have to plug in devices every two or three days. Um, and so, you, you know, you combine that robustness with the long battery life, and it it just from a practical standpoint, it just makes it a heck of a lot easier to, to get the data and to, to make this all work in a, in a wide range of different contexts. Yeah, I think it's probably more common than as well. That like um, for the guy or girl that's on a mining site, you know, they're like, oh, this thing will be broken in a week. Well, try and break it. Go for it. Because I tried to break it. So um, let's see, when, you know, and I know many other people tried to break it. It's encased in this rubber case. It, the, the, the actigraphy device itself is encased in this rubber kind of band, which is really cool. And um, you can bounce it off the ground and still some break. And um, like Jake said, it's got like a USB built into the handle, which charges charge within an hour or so. On top of that, it's got a quick release strap for those who are worried about adornment policies catching on machinery. If it does catch, just comes straight off. And it's also intrinsically safe to be used underground as well. Um, so it's pretty cool in that respect that it's firstly indestructible and it's water resistant as well. Um, so a number of years ago, we drove a whole truck, one of those big trucks over one, and we still got the data over. We had a guy try to cut it with a bandsaw. We still got the data over. And, you know, someone's going to swallow it soon and see if we can still get the data over. And uh, that could be interesting. But yeah, pretty robust now, I tell you. And we use them in judo, a judo camp. We used them in a grappling camp at the AIS. Um, and the guys wore them while grappling. And people were worried about you know hitting off each other. And then we also used it in rugby, where the guys just wore them, with the exception of the game. And because they're in their rubber, if they hit off anybody, it didn't hurt. But what was really interesting is when we start, start speaking to basketball athletes, they were worried about getting injured. I was like, of all the sports, like judo and rugby can use it, military can use it, mining can use it, surely basketball. So... You know, it's it's uh, it's a pretty robust device, and that's been that's been one of the biggest benefits I find of, of using those devices in research compared to other activity devices, is in the applied uh, environments that we in. You know, because my whole PhD thesis is about combat and contact athletes, and you can't give them a nice little pretty watch to wear around because uh, these guys will break everything. They're worse than soldiers. I think it's worth noting too, Ian. Um coming back to the, the, the data and privacy piece is that you're seeing consumer wearable devices, they're jamming more and more features, functionality, sensors into the devices. And we, such as optical heart rate sensors and gyros and other things. And we've chosen not to go that route, in particular heart rate, for a few reasons. One is, is it's really hard to get good heart rate off the wrist because there's a lot of noise. 
it's also a battery killer. Yeah. But what in, in, in these industrial settings and in working with large companies, what often is, is overlooked until it gets to legal is what, what, exact, what data are you actually capturing, right? And when we start to go down this path of capturing uh, heart rate information, it is very, very different than what we're doing, which is essentially just motion, right? So uh, from a, in terms of actually making this feasible to implement in, in large organizations that have a requirement to potentially, as, as it is in the UK, they have what's known as the General Data Protection Act, where they have very stringent requirements to all placed on organizations in Europe to that limit the the use and the processing of private information and data. Um, uh, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a something that that you know we have had to take careful consideration in the way our system is designed and how the data is processed and how we're implementing it. And and so that's that's one benefit of the ready band is it, it is. Uh, it is fairly simple in terms of the actual sensors. There's no GPS. There's no microphone. Doesn't know where you are, what you're doing. Uh, really, all it is is we're inferring sleep based on motion. That's it, right? And then all the magic's happening on the on the software side when we get the safety model going and the mobile apps and and so on. All right. So Jacob. Um with all these different devices you spoke about, you know, and you discussed like all these different things that are hanging off the bells and whistles and the, the battery life and so on, because I, I come across this a lot and I've heard one recently that's going to measure cortisol level through sweat, you know, and I kind of just recently was like, what's going to happen with the battery life? Like you said, and I'm just wondering with all these things that are happening, do you think people ever get microchipped in their wrist and have all this data? Like, you know, there was a- yeah, I don't know. Yeah, there was a news story floating around over in the U.S. I think the last couple of weeks, where there was a company where some of their employees volunteered to get chipped. Yeah, I did see that here. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So I, I think it's inevitable. I mean, I think I think that the the technology is is going to continue to evolve, and we're going to see more patches, more sensors, uh, and they're going to be more approachable, more practical too. You know, we're seeing we're seeing more and more. Um, uh, more and more sensor technology that's coming in the form of a patch. Um, that, though, um, that isn't a trivial effort, right? Because you're still constrained somewhat by battery life. Yeah. You're constrained by just the very nature of, of locomotion, of, of movement and perspiration and other things. It's really, it's, it's hard to uh, engineer a solution that is, is reliable in terms of data collection in, in its scale. And so we, you know, we, we use the wrist um, and, and the real estate of the wrist. Um, and our new device has is, is got a clock on it, so it can also serve as a, as a wristwatch, which, which helps. But um, you know, for, for in these particular contexts, the battery life's a big one, right? Yeah. And it's in, um, just probably a word on why, why we use the wrist and not the hip. And um, numerous studies have shown that the wrist is better at picking up this motion as opposed to on the hip or other parts of the body. So that's why wrist actigraphy against polysomography is, is generally used because the wrist is more is more valid as opposed to the hip. So Jacob, um, over the last couple of years, I've been looking at um, you know a lot obviously a lot of sleep data with biomathematical data, 
and uh, looking at performance measures, uh, looking at productivity measures, and trying to get these associations, which can be quite difficult. Are you guys doing anything in the space about trying to link this data with productivity or performance? And if so, um, what kind of success are you having around it? You know, I, mean, I think this is, this is a, a, an enormous untapped opportunity is this sort of convergence of, of human performance and sensors and software. So, you know, if you look at, let's say, one of the world's largest high-tech manufacturers, and that is General Electric, um, the former CEO now, Jeff Immelt, over the last three to five years, Jeff has talked um, in virtually every presentation that I've seen him speak, he's been talking about the industrial internet. Right, and invest, making huge investments in software and analytics and AI, and this being a huge area of focus for GE. And, it, and when you're GE, it's easy to throw around amazing stats like, you know, in, in an aviation context, just a 1% you know, fuel savings translates into $10 billion of savings annually for our clients. Yeah. And what I think is so interesting is you have, in high-tech manufacturing, you have sensors being embedded into everything and you have all of this massive amount of data streaming off of planes and trucks and cars and everywhere else and yet we still have very very little visibility around the performance of the operator and in some contexts the operator is going to be phased out eventually but in many contexts that's not the case and well you know we've been involved in a few projects recently where we've started to explore associations uh, in the data looking at fatigue and driver performance as an example so working with a tracking company here in north america where we with based on the telematics can start to look at do fatigue drivers register more excessive speed events or are they braking more harshly? Or are their steering inputs different when they're experiencing high levels of fatigue or lowers of level of lower, lower levels of alertness? And based on the data that we have thus far and some of the preliminary work we've done with a few different clients, um, there is agreement there, right? Generally, we are seeing tired drivers are more likely to register at excessive speed events. Right. And and so that, I think, is a, a natural uh, progression of, of where we'll go and, and really will support the more broad adoption of technology such as ours, because it starts to make things very real very quickly. Right. And we're just tying um, uh, collisions to to it. We're driving uh, and we're tying, you know, the, the economics or the, the business case to it with with the objective data. This is really interesting, Jacob, because here in Australia, um, just in August, the Sleep Health Foundation, in association with like Australian Sleep Association and Deloitte Access Economics, released a report um, about sort of the, the financial impact, I suppose, of sleep disorders. And this report has been done previously, I think in 2010 or 11, and now this was the next version that came out. And a couple of quick stats from that report said that approximately 7.4 million Australians do not get enough sleep every night. So this is about 40% of our population. This lack of sleep then resulted in 394 Australians, more than one a day, dying, been, you know, losing their life, dying from either falling asleep, driving a vehicle, like you just said, 
or in an industrial incident, that fatigue is part of it. That's more than one a day. Now, if you didn't even care about those people, right, and you were only compared with the, you were only, <laughs> you know, sort of interested in the asset management and financial, those numbers are even staggering also, you know, where the total financial impact of poor sleep is $26 billion in Australia, where the productivity losses are nearly $18 billion, and that's about $2,500 per person per year. And so these kind of big macroeconomic numbers are quite interesting. And so if you can get down into the, the daily kind of, uh, like you said, the telematic data from the, from the vehicle, and if you can you know, save a person's life, first of all, you know, improve their productivity and performance, secondly, and reduce these costs, finally, I think that's an amazing approach. You can get out that granularity of detail. And it's, uh, like you said, it's an untapped opportunity. And I agree with it as well. So I think it's very, very interesting that you'll get into this because it's timely with these type of reports that are coming up. And again, back to accessibility, and it's, it's becoming more and more accessible because the fleet operators, you know, it's, it's standard practice now. Most of them have some sort of uh, telematics devices in the cabs. Yeah. And, and so the, the data is there and, and being able to start to combine that with the human performance piece I think is, yeah, it's, 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 it's definitely where we're headed. And I think for a lot of organizations, big or small, there's huge untapped opportunity. Yeah. And I think as well, if you have that sort of data from a sleep perspective and fatigue, and then you also have telematic data as well about the performance, I'm sure there's probably a case there to go to insurance companies to have your premiums lowered because you're demonstrating objective data of how your, you know, your workforce is engaging in these high-risk activities and particularly in driving vehicles and driving for a lot of companies, particularly in mining or industrial applications, um, is, is, is the number one risk. Yeah, and I, you know, if I, if I think of my recent experience in, in, in not only delivering the technology, but combining that with the appropriate level of onboarding, implementation, training, and, and, and providing the right support resources as well for those who, who need the help. Right, who want, who need to get to that, who need to be escalated, who may need to seek seek help from a medical professional. You know, we have seen that there are quite material improvements to be made in terms of average alertness scores and time spent on duty in a fatigue impaired state, just by starting to chip away at those controllable factors, getting people thinking about their habits and their hygiene. Right? Getting people thinking about the consistency of, of the timing of their sleep and giving them sleep individualized sleep strategies to better manage um, their sleep in, in the context of their lives, right? Whether they're a shift worker or they're a fly-in, fly-out, drive-in, drive-out, whatever it may be, there's, there is low-hanging fruit that can result in better sleep, better on-the-job performance, and, and better health outcomes as well. Right. And so it doesn't need, in my experience too, is, is that a lot of this data, it immediate, it's easy immediately to go to the big sort of hairy, scary stuff, which is, oh boy, we got to change everything. We got to change the shift pattern. It's, you know, whereas in my experience, there's often so much very low cost, high value opportunities to address first. Looking oh, I agree. Yeah. Looking at sleep environments, you know, subsidizing mattresses and fans, uh, blackout blinds, earplugs, sleep masks, uh, tr 
to bringing bringing their family members in and 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 doing orientation sessions. So much low hanging fruit that really, in the scheme of things, doesn't cost much of anything to, to execute on. Yeah, it's only when you put in that kind of value metrics about you know um, impact and cost. A lot of times, these these actions will have high impact and be low cost. A lot of them and, will be. And, is, and the ready band allows us to actually evaluate the effectiveness of some of these mitigations, right? Yeah. So if we're saying, okay, let's, let's train our people, let's, let's improve the sleep environment, let's change when, you know, there's, there's any number of different things, we can, with the objective data, actually evaluate the effectiveness of those. And if, if those mitigations aren't effective, then we move on to the next thing, right? And we, we chip away at it without it being so, you know, overly disruptive to continuity of operations and, and economic impact and so on. I, I don't know if you saw recently, Jacob, um, I think it only came out this month, but um, a guy called Matt Driller, you know Matt Driller? He's down in New Zealand. He does research using the ready band. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I've, I've, I'm familiar with Matt, yeah. Yeah, so Matt Driller has a new paper out with somebody else, and I'm going to just bring it up because I want to give credible credit as due here um, for these guys. And it was in Netball Athletes, um, and I'll put the link to this full paper um, in the show notes. But it was the title of the paper was Sleep Hygiene Education Improved Sleep Indices in Elite Female Athletes. And it was published recently uh, in a journal of International Journal of Exercise Science by O'Donnell and Driller. And this comes exactly to your point, Jacob, where they had 26 elite female athletes and they had sort of pre and post measures of sleep using the ready band. And they took all these measures like sleep efficiency, which is a measure of quality, time in bed, sleep latency, total sleep time in the whole lot. And they gave them um, a sleep hygiene education session and an improved sleep from pre and post. So there was a significant, like a statistical significant improvement in total sleep time from pre to post with the sleep hygiene education session. So, you know, ex- these guys have demonstrated in this environment, such as netball, that, you know, you use a device like the Bad to quantify sleep, you have an education session, and then you can quantify the improvement in that as well. And so that's really cool. And that paper's freely available, which I'll include in the show notes, because I know I know Matt has published a, a paper on the ReadyBand device previously. So, yeah, so this, I knew from this yesterday. That's awesome, and you know, this it makes me think of this 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 concept that that we advocate for, which is setting and establishing individualized sleep traits and characteristics. So essentially, building a baseline profile of the athlete and getting a sense of um, not only sort of the chronotype, but then the looking at um, are they a light sleeper, are they easily disturbed, and thinking through things like. Where in the hotel are you situating them? Mm. And who are they, if, if they're sharing rooms, who are they sharing a room with? Yep. And does that person snore? <laughs> and, and just kind of thinking, being more thoughtful about those, the basic things and, and trying to do, do those, those things better to set our people up for success. You know, and uh, I, I, I think, again, the data can inform so much of, of that and make it easier to start to evaluate where where the pinch points lie and where your resources and your focus and your time are going to be best rewarded. Excellent. 
So Jacob, uh, just wrapping it up, um, how can people find out more about the Ready Band and Fatigue Science? Um, you know, is there a website people can go to? Is there an email address and we can, that we can put in the show notes? Can people follow you guys on Twitter? How do you get in contact with you guys to find out more information, see video tips to hold on? Absolutely. So I'd start at fatiguescience.com. Depending on where you're coming from and, and your nature of interest, we've got a lot of content there uh, for you to consume. Uh, organized by different verticals, whether it's industry, high performance, military. So I'd, I'd recommend starting there. Um, be sure to check out our blog on fatiguescience.com as well as please follow us on Twitter. And uh, if any one of your listeners wants to have a chat about more of anything that we discussed today, I'd be happy to chat with them. So feel free to reach out to me. Uh, you can do so on the website as well. Just visit the contact page, fill out the form, and, and we'll get back in touch with you. And you guys are a global organization, so what's predominantly based on North America, you do, like you said, these kind of projects in Australia, Europe, Central Asia, everywhere. You guys are, are a global company, so you're not just restricted to North America for any of our listeners anywhere else. You've done projects all over the world, correct? That's right. Yeah, absolutely. So we, we, we have a truly global footprint now, which is a lot of fun because we get to um, interface with a lot of different organizations doing a lot of amazing things in, in all these different environments. And that, and with that comes a lot of, a lot of experience uh, in learning and, and how to, you know, sort of make the technology work in a wide range of environments as well, which is is a great experience and good fun. Well, that's great, Jacob. Listen, thank you very much for your time today and explaining the ready band and some of the data we can get out of and how it can be, you know, more importantly, how it can be used for improvement and giving us an overview of that because I think in today's world with lots of devices out there, it's good to kind of uh, hone in on one that's been used widely and is, is kind of well respected. So thanks very much, Jacob, and really enjoyed having you on. Thanks, Ian. I appreciate it. Okay, and that episode is done with Jacob Fiedler. Thanks again to Jacob for coming on the podcast. If you want to know more about the Ready Band, uh, head to fatiguescience.com. You can get lots of more info there. Contact the guys, get a demo. Uh, Google them, those guys as well on YouTube. We've got some cool little videos with some sports teams they've worked with and some great material. Okay, um, on the next episode, we have a mining expert in terms of fatigue risk management and mining. So for you guys out there that are working in mining, oil and gas, um, applied settings, this podcast would be good. His name is Mr. Todd Dawson. He is a biological anthropologist. That's a mouthful who studied at Harvard and was a football player as well. Uh, quite an interesting guy, being friends with Todd for coming up on 10 years, so, or a little less maybe. And so that episode will be next. Okay, so I'm going to leave you with a song. If you're heading off to sleep after listening to this podcast, if that's the type of podcast you'd like to send you to sleep, you might want to stop now because the next song coming up to play out is the Insomnia song by Faithless, which I don't know why I never played before at the end of the podcast. However... This came up on a mix the other day when I was out for a run and it really got me fired up. And I didn't realize it was released 22 years ago. So if you remember the Faithless song, it's a bit of a blast from the past. Every time I hear it, I think about being in a specific nightclub in my hometown in Ireland. Um, But yeah, enough stories. Thank God there was no social media around then. All right, enjoy this song and uh, next episode will be Todd Dawson.